Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 337, a primo episode. In primo, I mean it's a prime number, 337, featuring our good guest, Andy Boyd, who is the co-founder and VFX supervisor at Jam VFX. I've known Andy for quite some time. He and I worked at Method back in the day, which was a lot of fun. Uh, he is a very creative person and a really interesting artist, and he's done a lot of interesting work. Kristen, what did you think of Andy? This was a great podcast. I loved mm -hmm. it. You get to kind of hear his story just going from South Africa to London and now LA, which, as you said, he has his own studio, GMVFX, in Culver mm -hmm. City near us. Um, and you also asked the question, why are South Africans um, dominating Houdini? And he explains <laughs> that as well. Um, and then you guys go into a section of kind of... Uh, visual effects and bidding on different jobs and the difference between like why people are moving to Vancouver to be for the tax reasons, but not necessarily necessary now. So um, as you'll right. explain it a lot better than me, but it, that was really interesting. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, especially with COVID people working from home and then the geographic location is not necessarily as important anymore. And you're wondering why there's these tax incentives based on geography. And so that kind of is an interesting uh, conversation that we had about that and then how to bid on jobs. And yeah, it was a really great, it was a really great chat with him. So definitely uh, you guys should check it out when we talk about that. Uh, okay, great. Kristen, we have a couple of events or one event going on. What's happening? Yep. So you can find this out at chaos.com slash events on September 9th and 10th. We are hosting 24 hours of chaos again. So it's going to be 12 back to back shows with more than 60 hosts, speakers and guests all in a 24 hour live stream. And we actually have our own site for this, which is chaos.com slash 24 hours and hours is spelled H O U R S all out. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Again, that's chaos.com slash the number 24 hours. Uh, and that is where you can check out all the stuff. September 9th and 10th. Very excited about 24 hours coming back. We are going to be doing the West Coast show, uh, but there are going to be 11 other shows that you can check out as well during that 24 hour period. Uh, okay, we have a couple of product announcements. What's happening there? Yep, you can find these out at chaos.com. Uh, recently, we had V-Ray 5 for Revit, Revit <laughs> Update 1. And uh, we also have V-Ray 5 for Cinema 4D, Maya, and Houdini, all Update 1s now available. And Vantage Update 1.3 was a little bit ago, but those are all available. Perfect. So you guys can check out all the product updates and the new features that we've added to all of these products at chaos.com. If people want to know more about the podcast, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash podcast or chaos.com slash cggarage. And if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv. Perfect. And if you have any ideas or comments or uh, you know suggestions for podcasts you want to hear, let us know. Labs at chaosgroup.com is the best way to reach us there, and we'll hear your suggestions. We've been getting some great suggestions recently, so please keep them coming. Uh, we will love to reach out to all the people that you think would be great to have on the podcast. Again, that's labs at chaosgroup.com. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share us with your friends and your family. But for now... Enjoy episode 337 with Andy Boyd, co-founder and VFX supervisor at Jam VFX. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the chaos group talks. 
You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. Yeah, we actually went back and listened to some of the previous ones. They're really cool. I didn't realize you did this. I'm just, as I'm working, I'm just kind of going back and listening to some. And um, you had so many great guests on. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel, I feel, I kind of feel quite humbled. It's like everybody's so professional, and I come along, and I'm like, oh shit! <laughs> like an ordinary, ordinary guy that somehow slipped his way into uh, into the podcast. No, absolutely not. You're not an ordinary guy, and it's uh, it's awesome to have you. In fact, Melissa Melissa Knight says hello. By the way, she says hi. Oh, super, yes. Yeah, so uh, so it's, so she said, oh, tell Andy I said hi. I said, absolutely. Um, now, listen, Andy, you and I worked together at Method. I remember that was the first time we started working together, uh, which was a lot of fun. But I have a question for you because I've had, I've had a few South Africans on the show, and all of the South Africans I know were big Houdini experts. Now, what is the secret? <laughs> what is the secret? Why is South Africa, South African visual effects artists, so good at using Houdini? What's what? Where did that all start? <laughs> yeah, it's quite funny actually because um, when I first started in three D, I'll, I'll bypass how I got into three D. I'll I'll, actually, I'll tell you quickly. I'll, okay. I'll do like a super a super short version so no one gets bored. <laughs> but I, I I studied printing. And um, one day when I was, um, I was doing color retouching, working in Photoshop, um, a, dis a discrete logic magazine was on the desk. Okay. And on the cover was a Rolling Stones music video that had just come out where they were like giants walking in the city. Mm -hmm. And I opened it up and in this discrete uh, magazine, they had like a breakdown of how they did it. And it just totally blew my mind. I was like, this is like Photoshop on moving pictures. And I was like, I straight away then and there, I was like, this is what I have to do. Okay. And so I quickly phoned around and it turns out there were two companies in South Africa that had a flame, one in Cape Town, one in Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. And I called both of them and both of them had five operators for the one flame working shifts. And they were like, literally two people would have to pass away or resign or something before you would even get onto the waiting list. Right. Um, but the one company I called, they said, we don't need a compositor or any flame, but we do need a 3D person. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 3D? That was pretty cool. Well, what do I need? And they said, well, come in next week Thursday and bring a showreel. And I was like, showreel? And they were like, you know, like a collection of work you've done. I was like, um, okay. <laughs> so, I took, so I took a bank loan, bought 3D Studio Release 3, mm -hmm. made myself a showreel in the, in the evenings that week. They went for my interview. And, um, and then in the interview, which was with, with Jason Iverson and, and Hilton Travis. Right. Um, they were like, to be honest, your 3D is not really that good. And then I said to them, I know. I don't even, I don't even know much about 3D. And I can tell you it's not that good. And I told them the story. And they were like, you did all that in one week. And then, and, and then uh, and I said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, we'll give you like a junior entry position and you can come help us out. So that's when I started. And then when I started, it was um, Jason Iverson, um, Darren Hendler, um, a guy called Roland Mark, uh -huh. and Mark Horsfield, yep. all in the same room as that, the yeah. people that I learned 3D from. So I feel like I got my grounding by just working with people that were so competent and so good. Right. But the only the only one using Houdini though was Jason okay. at the time. Darren was using Softimage. Right. I started learning Softimage and so was Rory. And then um, Mark Horsfield joined and he started learning Houdini. Which at that time, it just started. Prisms had just gone to Houdini and he was just complaining about how hard it was. 
He was like, this is so right. ridiculously hard. And he'd be like, I'm just trying to make a sphere and move from here to here. And I'd be like, oh, look, it's off the marsh. Click, sphere, move. And he'd be like, it's so easy for you guys. And then um, I just stuck with Soft Marsh because I loved it because I just wanted to animate and light and not be involved in all the hardships of watching them struggle. <laughs> and I learned Soft Marsh and then went to exercise, went to Maya, Soft Marsh, Maya, exercise, back to Maya before I actually got into Houdini. So I had many, many years before getting into Houdini. And even though the whole time in the background, Jason and Mark were just killing it with, um, you know, these amazing things that were, they were performing in Houdini. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I moved to London and I actually had left them, ironically, that um, I started getting into Houdini. And then it just it was a total eye opener because I always just assumed it was too hard to learn because it's all procedural and very programming. But then I realized actually it's the reverse. If you're not good at programming and and writing your own code, it's it's ideal because it's all node based. You can plug things together, and it works really well. So basically, if you if you've got great ideas and you want to see them through, but you don't want to write scripts, Python code. It's the perfect software for you. So, yeah, it's, you're right. I didn't think about it that way. It's basically just a graphical interface for what you want to code, right? So it's actually easier to, to, to understand what's actually going on because of the way the nodes work. Exactly. Yeah. In the trial and error, and you can try things and be like, that, that's almost perfect. Just copy paste those on the side, create a new little network and experiment. Where with coding, it's, it's a lot more... Um, um, well, I don't want to say advanced, but it's, it's a lot more kind of like you, you have to be really cognizant of what you're doing and it's a lot more kind of um, abstract. Right. Yep. In, in, in your mind. So, so which makes it harder for kind of visual creative people to, to get in there. Yeah, um, interesting. Uh, what about so, what about what about David Prescott? Was he around during that time as well, or was he? Did it, oh, listen, man, I missed him by. I'm so disappointed because I'm a massive fan of Dave, mm-hmm. and I have met him many times on like different award things and different um, different events. Yep. And I'm a huge fan. Of Alex. He's such a nice guy, and I missed him by a couple of weeks. I was actually the, the I, well, I mean, I was never going to be his replacement. He's like so far advanced, right? But it was his available computer and seat that I think I came in to use. Oh, okay. But, um, He's like a yeah. He's like a legend. He's um, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I've worked with well, I work with Jason. I mean, I work with all those guys. Uh, you know, Darren Hendler, <laughs> all of them. So it's been really kind of interesting to see uh, to see where where all you guys came from. It's funny that you guys all sort of had a similar origin uh, story or similar origin place that you worked on together, which was really kind of kind of awesome. I mean, I you know you yeah. don't necessarily you don't always think of South Africa as super high visual effects, but it sounds like there were some very amazing things that were going on there in that room yes, specifically. In South Africa at the time, the, in Johannesburg, there were only two companies doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I don't know how, I, just, I was just super fortunate. I mean, to walk into a CG room and have that caliber of people working there to learn of, um, just super fortunate. Yeah, for sure. I must say, in, in general, I've been very lucky and fortunate. I feel my whole career, I've been quite lucky with um, like the situations and um, the jobs I've been able to to get. And I, I don't know if it's being in the right place at the right time or just working hard at the right time or what it is, but I've well, been quite lucky. You definitely have, you know, you have enough talent that you were able to get a job after only learning the software on your own for one week. So there is definitely some talent to be said. <laughs> uh, okay, so so the next thing uh, uh, I want to ask you was, uh, okay, so so you were in South Africa, you got started, and what kind of work were you doing uh, in Johannesburg at that time? Oh, it was um, it was the bottom of the bottom. I was doing little um, little animation like commercials. I remember. The average schedule for a job, you know, a short one would be one week, and a 
a really crazy long schedule with like loads of time to dial it in could be four weeks. Right. Um, I, don't even know, I don't even know how we made that stuff work. And then, you know, trying to render in a mental ray or softer margins renderer. Right. Um, I mean, at the time, mental ray was kind of the holy grail, like everybody wanted to use it to do their rendering. And I remember vivid memory of us getting our first Octane and Jason installing softer margin it, and we made a chrome sphere and we hit render and it drew the sphere and we're like, oh my God, put another one in. We put two spheres in. And then the one sphere was reflected in the other sphere. And we're like, oh my God, there's two spheres reflecting each other. Put one more, put one more. We're like <laughs> chanting one more, one more. And he was duplicating spheres and we were previewing. And I think we, we tapped out at about six spheres in the scene. They were all reflecting each other, rendering on this octane. And we just blew our minds. We're like, that was real reflections. It wasn't like being cheated. Real <laughs> yep. <way people. laughs> yep, I do. I, those were the days. So, so what year yeah. was this about? If you were talking octanes, it's got to be what, late 90s? Yeah, that would have been like about 98 on that type of time, 97, 98. Right, right. That's interesting. So, okay, so so what uh, what uh, what drove you after that? I mean, ob- obviously at some point you were stopping doing commercials and you started to do some different things. So where, where were you going from there? So so from South Africa, um, my wife and I decided to to, to immigrate to London okay. in, 2000, in 2000. And the main reason, the main reason for me work-wise was... Um, Every time a job came along in South Africa that had a decent budget and a decent time and a good creative, they would go to London. And eventually I was like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So we went, I went over there and, um, and ended up getting a job at Glassworks. Mm. Um, thanks to Darren. Had, Darren had, had worked there before and um, had done such an amazing job of impressing the boss there, Hector. And I think he just assumed all South Africans would be as good as Darren. So he offered to go work there. <laughs> so so I, I started working there and loved it and worked there for um, three, four years until, until um, I left to go to Framestore. And ironically, one of the reasons I left to go to Framestore was I just wanted to use Houdini and they wouldn't buy Houdini for me. So I called up Framestore's commercial division. I was like, do you guys have Houdini? And they're like, yeah, we've got a bunch of licenses nobody uses. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, cool. Can I come over, can I come over and work there? And they were like, sure. So... I went over to brainstorm using Houdini and then started doing jobs in Houdini over there. Got it. And then um, and then worked there for four or five years. And then uh, we wanted to have a family and we were looking around London and we were like, well, at the time I was head of 3D at Framestore, commercial division. And I was like, I earn a good salary. It's, it's like, like career-wise, like I, nothing was really going to change drastically. Like my salary wasn't going to double, but nothing crazy was going to happen. And we were like living in a little one-bedroom flat about seven miles from work in a nice little area. And I, and I said to my wife, like, you know, I always imagined when we had a family and kids, we'd have more than a one-bedroom apartment, maybe a little house. And if we were going to have that in England, it would have meant like catching a train for an hour and a half into the countryside or something. And I said to her, there must be places in the world where we can do the same thing and have a better quality of life. Well, our, our idea of quality of life, outdoorsiness, hiking, more space. And, um, and we chose LA. And that's when we moved to LA. That was in 2007. And that's when I started that method, and it was so yep. it must have been a method of maybe a year, and then I met you. You showed up with um, with two very talented people, um, yep. Daniel Buck and um, Chris Bankoff. 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 Yep. Yeah, and um, and introduced me to some amazing technology, V-Ray, yeah, and the whole and, and the whole workflow, and I mean, um, and the whole workflow. I mean, I think it, you guys really elevated that company. I think when when, when I joined there, they were. They were just kind of, they were in their typical small, small studio. Every job is its own problem. Just bang it out. Somehow, somehow you get to the end. But there was never any like, 
thought into like, well, how do we get to the end? How can we do this better next time? And then you guys really introduced a fantastic process there of workflow, color space, way of working, rendering with V-Ray. Um, yeah, it was it was very you with so many people. I mean, there was Scott Metzger who met you there and then became like a huge V-Ray advocate. There, was, there were many people that used that that moment, I think, is spawned off the whole thing. Yeah, at the time V-Ray was not uh, was not actually it was barely in Maya at all. And so that was one of the first mm -hmm. places that was brought into Maya. And I asked this to I asked Vlado about it and he goes, Well, no one's really done it. He goes, Well, I want two things. I want to try use V-Ray in Maya and I want to use it in Linux. And those are two things that had never been done. And so we really kind of banged on it pretty hard to try to see what could happen in that mm -hmm. process. And uh it was it was interesting. It was it was it was interesting because you know method at the time, like you said, they were using default settings and default pipeline that whatever Maya gave them as their pipeline. You know, it wasn't actually trying to do anything beyond that. So it was kind of um, yeah, it was kind of interesting what they what the process that they did. Uh, but yeah, and then you and I came together and we were like, hey, let's do some. You know, we can work together. But you were using Houdini and I was using Maya. But we definitely uh, you know thought about. Uh, some of the cool stuff we were doing. I remember you were very good at furry things. <laughs> furry things was a specialty and so, or something that you kind of got almost pigeonholed into in some cases. Yes, I know. But I do, I do love creature work and doing creatures and fur. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so yeah. it's a good thing. Yeah, so what were some of the favorite projects you were working on, uh, you know, by Framestore and, and at Method, some of the cool things you were working on there? Yeah, well, the one the one job I loved was that that first squirrel I did. Um, I don't know if you remember that one. It's for Bridgestone Scream, a little squirrel like Scream yes. on the road. And that and that was that was quite fun, just because for the first time I wasn't in a big studio anymore. Because at Framestore there was a lot of um, technical support in the way there were a lot of other smart people to bounce ideas off. And and if you got yourself into a bit of a bind trying to solve a problem, like for example, previously at Framestore. Um, I had a lot of smart people in my department, like Dan Seddon was one of them. You should try to talk to him, actually. He's a fantastic guy. Oh, okay. I'll send you his details. And um, like, so, we, we, you know, I would be like the creative with the fur and the creatures. And then he was he was um, sitting next to me writing a fur procedural for Render Man. Um, and I'd be like, you know, it'd be great to have an attribute that could drive this. And you'd like code it for me. So you, have, you had like a strong support base like that. Right. They wouldn't have went to method. It was like none of that. It was just me and myself yep. and I. And um, so when I was doing that scroll, it was like a real um, rewarding experience because then I had to dig into the CVEX and the code and and do a lot of that myself. And then it's actually it's actually kind of amazing what you can achieve when you're kind of like forced to do it, but, um, you know. Um, so I was quite proud of myself for getting that to look good and what and what it achieved. And um, and then Houdini actually took a lot of those fundamental ideas and principles I put into place, and actually that that became the beginning of them implementing their own first system. Um, which is which is what I still use today, um, and it's come a long way in like recent recent versions. Yeah. And in fact, um, in fact, I have a creature job we're doing now for a feature film. I have to do an orangutan, and and as I'm going into it now, I'm just thinking about like what what am I going to render it with? Because if I'm going to render it with Mantra, which is normally what I do, just because of the fur procedural, you can render so many millions and millions of hairs. If I use Redshift, which will be used for a lot of our other rendering. I can't. You actually just can't use it because you have to. You have to have geometry that gets converted, and then you you've gone from millions of hairs to thousands of hairs. Right. Um, so I was actually going to look into um, V-Ray as well and see what's going on because I know Ross has been using it a lot. And he's been telling me it's, it's, it's the implementation of it in Houdini now has become pretty good. 
It, yes, in fact, I would be happy to help you out with that mm. information. Uh, I'm, I'm very close with the developer as well. Uh, and uh, he's a really good guy. And obviously, V-Ray has been a big, a big part of that, that process. And we're actually doing a lot in USD as well. And Houdini is the best place for us to do all these USD things. So, um, oh, definitely, definitely. I've got, so I've got a nice long um, schedule for that one. It, um, it only delivers next year, April, and I can start now. So, <laughs> okay. Well, I definitely yeah. let you know uh, about that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. So, so yeah, fur fur has always been a challenge. You know, I've I, I never when I was doing CG to start. You know, it was always like I was always doing cars or hard surfaces or you know buildings, environments, mm -hmm. um, and so uh, characters and fur was was not always uh, something I was doing, especially with full ray tracing. Uh, but I definitely you know learned a lot about that process, and it's 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 hard. It's a hard problem. Um, but yeah, I love I love working in fur now uh, and hair as well. And, you know, and the hair shaders with melanin levels and all those types of things are always kind of mm. interesting as well. Uh, well, that's that's really cool, Andy. I mean, that's 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 great 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 stuff and definitely interesting what you're uh, what you've been doing. So tell us a little bit more. So obviously, you know, you and I were at Method for a while. I left Method. I think you were still there. But what what did you do uh, after after Method? So so after Method. Um... I was there. I was there for five years, and then um, and then left Method to go to MPC. Oh, okay. And um, and then um, I was only at MPC for a year and a half, and and for the whole the whole for, for for a very long time, I've always wanted to start my own studio. It's been a kind of a, a dream of mine, right? But I've always known that you know, like it's not a one person thing. You need you need that like core team of people to start it with, and one person I've always like loved working with, we actually met at Glassworks in 2000 and have kind of worked on and off nonstop. But by the time I got to Method, we would do every job together was Jake Montgomery. He's a flame compositor. Yep. So every job I, I did the 3D on, he did the compositing on. And then he went to MPC and then I basically followed him because without him, I just felt like my other half was gone. Right. And, um, and then I followed him and then we did the same thing at MPC. Every big job we did, I did the 3D, he led the compositing. Right. And we didn't really like we did quite a few successful campaigns together, and I told, and, and, and he as well was also quite keen to start his own company or start our own thing. But we both agreed we were missing that third special person, which would basically be the producer, EP type person. And then at MPC, we met Asher Edwards, who was the EP there. Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of all came together. We all, we all got on really well. We were all similar, like-minded, and had a similar vision of what we, what we wanted to do. And then we left um, and started Jam in 2014. Okay. Um, that was that was um, six years ago. Wow. Okay. And now, um, yeah. And now I'm um, still going strong. Um, be, up until now, I've been doing commercial, like mainly commercial works, one or two Netflix things here and there, like long form stuff. And now we've actually hired a new EP of film and and, do, and film in long form and doing a real push for that and just got awarded a big um, feature film for Legacy. Sorry, Legendary. Right. Which is quite exciting. Because it's a, which is quite exciting because it's the CG creature I was telling you about that I need to R&D, different ways of rendering. Uh -huh. um, um, yeah, so it's, always, it's really exciting for me because I've always, haven't done so many creatures for commercials. I've always said, like, I'd, I would love to do one for a big feature film and then show show the big feature houses how a small place can do great creature work. Right. So here's my opportunity. Here's my opportunity. I better do good. Well, that's really cool. Well, how big, you know, obviously you said you started in 2014, so that's what, been six years. So how... Um, how many people are you guys now? I mean, how big is, is, is your we're, uh, we're about 30, 33 staff, 33, 30, 33 to 35 staff. 
Wow. And um, and we were, and there's generally about 10 to 15 freelancers in the building at the same time. So okay, there's always about 40 people around. Yeah. And what was that experience like starting your own company? I mean, obviously, you know, you got, you start with your core group of people, like you mentioned, you got Jake and you got Asher, right? So, and, and that that's pretty, pretty good tight group, but starting a company, that's hard. <laughs> How, what was that like? It's super, super nerve wracking. And it's kind of weird because it's easy to talk about doing it, but then to actually do it, like resign from your job, remortgage your house, take all that money. And basically at the age of 40, go like broke, like it's have nothing. Right. And and put it on the line and say, like, do you believe in yourself or do you not believe in yourself? And um and it's in you it's kind of you really have these kind of deep conversations in your mind of like, if you don't do if if you don't do it, you don't believe in yourself, then what are you doing in the world, you know? Right. So you have to kind of you have to kind of go for it and do it. And then it it, it is really nerve wracking. And I say that that first year is like is is really is really tough because you know you're basically saying we won't earn a salary for a year. We've taken all our money we've saved up. At the, you know, you've accumulated up to the age of forty, throwing it into your company and then mortgaging your house to raise the rest of the money, and then being like, you know, I really hope clients come. You know, like, will they come? Won't they come? You know, people say they will come before you start, but then when you do, nobody wants to be the first person to do a job with you, and right. it's really hard. And it's, it's kind of funny how you start off like. You know, we had some, um, between the three of us, we had some fantastic like client relationships with head creators at agencies. And and it's quite interesting that when you start your thing, nobody wants to take the chance to be your first job. You know? Because yep. then you come, they're next on the line for telling their creatives or the creators, to, you know, they're the ones saying, I don't want to go to one of the, the guaranteed big shops. I want to go to these small guys and start it up. And they're like, well, what if the job goes to shit? Right. It'll, it'll be your fault. And they're like, well, I don't really want that responsibility. Let's just stick to, you know, the milk. We'll, we'll yep. wait until they've we'll, we'll wait until they've done a few jobs, and then we'll go. So when it's safer, so it's very hard to kind of break into like the confidence. And I'd say it. I mean, it literally, it probably took about two to three years of building confidence with agencies and creatives and directors. Um, you know, doing small jobs, executing them well, and just kind of like showing that you can slowly do it. You know, working your way up from CG headphones to creatures. Um, and um, it's been an absolute blast doing it because. Um, looking back now, it was quite a rewarding experience. Although when you're in it, it's nerve-wracking, and um, and it's kind of great. I mean, now we've got to the place where you know you get to turn work away because you know you're only you are only 30, 40 people, and you kind of pick the projects you want to work on. Yeah. So it's just been it's been it's been it's worked out it's worked out to be a great experience. And what's really been fun though is being being the person because I've always loved building teams and hiring people and watching them grow. Um, but one of the troubles I've always had, especially at like other companies with the politics involved of like hiring and capex and payroll and kind of nonsense they they come up with. There's two. They, 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 one, they, if you found someone really talented, and you wanted to just hire them. There was a whole process of well, what work is confirmed, what work is booked. Do we need to hire somebody? Is no one in London we can send over instead of hiring that person? You know, so that that was always hard. And now that's gone because if you see someone that's talented and you want to hire them, you can just hire them. And the other thing that's great is if people are really talented. I've always believed, because that's kind of how I rose up in 3D, is what makes this industry special is it's not like accounting where or some other kind of industry where it's very structured, where it's like, well, if you don't have five years experience, you don't have five years experience and you can't move up to the next level. Right. In this industry, you could work one year, but have worked five years in one year and have an amazing amount of experience and just be a very hardworking, talented person. Right. And I feel like the industry allows people who are talented and work really hard to expedite their career and move, you can, I really believe in this industry, you, you can progress as quickly as you want to. 
It's, it's how, how driven you are and how motivated and how much harder are you prepared to work than just than, than what's required of you. Are you really, are you, you know, if you got, if you're given 10 shots to do, do, do 15 or finish your 10 really fast so you can do more shots. Like, and if you do that, it's almost guaranteed you'll move up quicker than any kind of like structured career. And it's great. In, sorry, it's kind of coming back to having your own company was great about that is when you identify that in a person, you're like, wow, this guy is something special. This lady is something special. You can just promote them, give them an increase and, and really help their careers evolve much faster without that kind of bureaucratic structure you get in some of those bigger companies. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I could, I can definitely see that. I mean, it, you know, mm. trying to trying to figure out the, the the talent of people is an interesting thing. I think that some people don't know that. Sometimes people assume that, oh, well, I've worked at, you know, all these big companies, and therefore I am talented. And I can't tell you how many times I don't want to, you know, name names, but several people that worked at very big visual effects companies, and they weren't necessarily that talented. <laughs> so it was a little bit challenging to talk to them, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah. well, they, 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 so yeah, just to, just to add to that, because I, <laughs> it's one of my peeve things as well, is in bigger companies, though, there's also the aspect of like, how well can you sell yourself as being competent? How right. well can you communicate and how well can you communicate in passing conversations with a superior in the corridor or right. in a meeting? And often those are the, the, the values that end up leading to a promotion or moving up in the company. And it's not necessarily the actual images you made or your contribution right. to the actual work on the ground level. Yeah, for sure. And then it's mm -hmm. also the the typical career path, right? I mean, I've worked at a very large company and mm -hmm. they're like, you know, several very large companies. And one's like, well, you know, you start off at this level and then you go, if you're lucky, you know, but maybe after two shows, you may be lucky to become a lead position. And then after two shows or three shows, mm -hmm. maybe you'll become a CG supervisor. And then after about a couple of those, you become, you know, like a DFX supervisor. It's like, it's not based on talent. It's based on how many shows you've done, right? And that's not necessarily yeah, yeah. the right idea. I agree. Yeah. And I, and I, and I do get why that's like that there because – it's probably just, it's probably just in, in a bigger scheme of things, it works better. Right. There's probably more talented people than there are positions available. Yep. So it's like, it's just a way of like keeping, you know, it's like, it's like a dictatorship or something. Like it looks crazy, but then you like look at the, the place and you're like, well, maybe that place works well with the dictatorship, you know? Right. You know, I agree. But I do like it. I do I do agree. It's really awesome to find people with talent, especially young talent. It's and they've got a lot of drive and they've got a lot of interest uh and seeing mm -hmm. them seeing them do those things uh is really is really great. Uh, and definitely rewarding because uh they're always so thankful for the learning opportunities that they get and you're so willing to give them more <laughs> because they're doing so yeah, well. Yeah. So, so it's kind yeah. of like a wonderful thing. It's like you seeing someone grow and then seeing great work coming out of it. Everyone's winning at this point. So it's a, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Well, that's great. So, you know, obviously it's the three of you guys, how fast was that growth process? I mean, obviously it's a challenging, you know, 30 well, people is not small. It feels like, it feels like it's, it's like kind of like a bit of an, like an exponential kind of growth because I want to say for the first year, there was five of us, even though we, at the time we were maybe doing three commercials in parallel. Mm -hmm. It was just, I was doing the work of four CG guys and my right-hand man, Zach, was doing the work of four CG guys. So we were like a team of eight, but we we're just two people. Right. And it's working super hard because, you know, you couldn't grow the payroll because you weren't guaranteed the work would kind of continue. Right. Um, and then I feel like it's really in the last two years where things have like suddenly started escalating. Um, right. It's it's. Um, I want to say I want to say 
this, especially, especially post-COVID from like around July last year, things just really kicked off. I think there was a lot of CapEx and advertising that had been kind of, that was being, being put on the back burner that people were now seeing through. And um, I feel like we've hired 10 people in the last 10 months. That's interesting. And, all, and it's very hard for us. Yeah. It's actually very hard to find people right now. Like, like I feel like everyone's got a job or multiple offers. Right. But, the, 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 you know, there's mm. some companies that did not necessarily do well during COVID and some that, that, that excelled in some ways. Is there, do you think, what's, what do you think the difference is in between like the kind of work they do or the attitude they do or like how, how, do, how do you think that's going to, how that balanced itself out? Well, one thing I noticed is what, so going into COVID, all of our work was commercial, the traditional commercial work that you know, where, you know, a production company films something and then we deliver it. Right. And when the production company stopped filming because of the COVID lockdowns, our work just pitted out. I and mean, we had no work for three months. Right. And then that was a real big eye-opener because I, didn't, I was looking around at other companies that were busy. And you saw a lot of the design companies or full CG companies that do a lot of full CG work were still like cranking away. In fact, they got more busy because there was people who wanted to film ads. And they're like, well, if you can't film it, what, what if you do it all in CG? So these kind of like all CG companies were like, they were just... They were, full, they were going full steam the whole way through COVID. And there was also, I noticed, companies that had long-form work where they, they had already been filmed, but it was a nine-month schedule to like deliver the work. They were keeping busy too. And then um, we decided that at that moment, it was like, we are going to start a long-form film division. And we we're also going to start doing a lot more full CG um, kind of um, work, which we actually started doing now, like a lot of kind of like Sony or Xbox style and um, commercials where actually you know like a lot of abstract beautiful particle simulations and that type of work so we can kind of beef up that side of our, our business where in a way if we, if we ever had a lockdown again it wouldn't just be so dependent on production companies filming stuff it was quite an eye-opener because when the going's good and you're busy you don't really realize how you, all your eggs are in one basket until the chicken stops laying eggs and they're like oh shit <laughs> we need to um, we need to be more diversified and, and have more reach because the talent and the things we do it's the same skill set across all those mediums so there's no reason not to like get involved in the other stuff yeah absolutely i think you're absolutely right it's interesting that you say that you know that you guys figured out how to diversify very quickly i think that's what some people didn't have that ability or didn't necessarily foresee it or couldn't have you know it was just the way that they operated just didn't work, allow that to happen uh, but it is it is an opportunity. And what about working from home? Obviously, you had to ch do some changes there. Was that something that was easy for you guys to adapt? Or yeah, well, we were we were kind of fortunate in a way that um, you know someone called Stu Burris, an animator. You might yes. remember him from Method. Yeah, so Stu's like a longtime friend of mine. I'm sure you know him well as well because he's been in the industry for ages. Mm -hmm. um, he had um, a kidney transplant like years and years ago. So when COVID started, um, he was worried, well, I was worried for him, is that um, his immune system is impaired because of that, and he's on like medication. So I said to our engineer, we need to get Stu working from home like ASAP. This is like in December, this is like, this is like early January, early January when, like when you first started hearing about it breaking out in China. Mm -hmm. I was like, if, if stuff goes bad here, I can't have Stu coming into the office and getting sick. His, his immune system is compromised. So we had, I feel like we had like a two-month head start to getting Stu working from home mm. and problem-solving with him. And then when, the, then when things like, <laughs> when it was a legitimate problem and you're like, holy shit, this is actually in America now. We like have to like, like leave the office and work from home. We already had like problem solved the whole working from home with Stu with, with the remoting into our workstations over here. 
Um, so that actually worked. That actually worked pretty well. And then so everybody just switched over to that. Right. And then um, and then um, and then we did, we we were really concerned about. It took us so long to build our crew because we're so meticulous about hiring people. So like, it's so hard to like, especially at a smaller company. Like, there's no, you know, everybody is so accountable for what they do. And the combination of having to be talented and have a great personality to fit in with everybody, um, there's not that many people around that like, has both. So it's taken us a long time to build our team. And we, we were just like, the one thing we can't do is let anybody go during COVID because it's taken so long to find those people. And we would just be devastated if after COVID we got busy and we couldn't find those people or they weren't available because they're taking other jobs. So we, um, so we kept everybody. And it worked out great because it actually ended up only being two to three months of quietness. And then it was just all guns blazing again. Right. Um, but you were able to survive then, those two, three months, right? That was the thing. You probably had enough saved up on the company to be able to survive that process, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. We, 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 like, luckily, we were like one month out from not having enough. And then it would have been like like payroll reductions or something. Right. And, um, and then... Um, and then, and then, and then people started coming back to the office really quickly. Um, and in fact, now the whole office is back right now. So we've all been back for I want to say like a month. Um, everyone's been vaccinated and and touch wood and been safe. And and luckily, I don't think one person in our whole crew out of the thirty people actually got COVID. That's we good. were all we, we were all super diligent with our like um, quarantining and then and, and looking after ourselves. Good. Good. Well, that's great. I mean, that's a that's a you know that's a big relief. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm really glad that you know people like you have figured out how to how to work it. Do you feel that post COVID now, shall we say? I mean, I don't know if it's quite post yet. I still think there's lingering aspects of it that are still around. But do you think that you've learned something new, or that there's some things that you're going to take away from this that is going to make you stronger and better as a company? Oh, absolutely. I think. Um, um, a couple of things. One, one is what I was saying first of all about just diversifying a bit as a company. Mm -hmm. So you know we're not so dependent on the fact things need to be filmed and building that kind of full CG and and more kind of long form longer projects that could stretch a closed down period of something that's already been filmed. The other thing is just the importance of your of your staff and and the and their and their, and their talent and their and their loyalty. Um, everybody like was you know just working away, cranking away, even if. We didn't have any work. Nobody like disappeared as if it was some kind of two, three month vacation. Everybody was checking in every day. Can I help with something? Do you want to pitch on a job? Do you want to do like a spec spot? Do you want to just do something? So we're not sitting around, you know, like everybody was like so um, committed to like to, to helping the company keep going and sticking with it. And uh, it's so it's so rewarding when you see that because you can't buy that anyway. And right. then uh, so now we now we have the opportunity to repay that loyalty by now that we're really busy in look, looking after everybody extra good and you know and treating them as well as we possibly can and all and then uh, and i guess um i guess it's just like like it's nice to it's, I, th I think it's like nice that you know to have a bit of a grounding in like i don't know, I don't know what the right word is but sometimes getting a bit of a scare it makes you appreciate what you have so much more mm -hmm. And now, kind of, when you come to work, you're like, "Oh, whew, I'm so glad we're still here and we're able to do things and and and, and keep going." Like, cause it it all seems kind of easy when the going's good, and then it takes an event like that to just make you realize how fragile things can get really fast. Yeah, it definitely um, makes you appreciate it for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure.
So, so I have a couple other questions I want, I want to know, you know, obviously what you were, when, when I saw some of the stuff you were doing back in, you know, God, we're looking back 12, 13 years ago when you and I first worked together, uh, uh, what we, we were looking at, you know, okay, the future of things or things are going to change and, and, and method definitely saw some stuff that they wanted to change. Right. And part of what you and I were doing when we went to method, like you said, it was a small boutique place that had done things in a very, you know, nice, only solving one problem at a time kind of place. They weren't necessarily thinking about the big picture or where things are going to go, but you and I sort of had a, the, uh, the, 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 the privilege of, of being part of that company's growth as you mentioned right and figuring out where it wanted to go uh what what do you what about today like what do you think about now what's the next growth period what's the next big thing that's going to happen did you think in visual effects or in the industry in general that's going to change the way that people think about visual effects what's what's the next thing that you're planning for um well it's kind of like a tough one in a way because our industry is always evolving so quickly as it goes but to try like jump ahead the next few iterations of and think what's really in the future. I mean, the most immediate thing straight away is just the, the ability of um, global work. I mean, it just seems like, you know, if you, if you need an, an artist in Stockholm or anywhere in the world, it's, it's now a no brainer where before it's like, is this guy going to be remote? How's he going to work? How's he going to connect the server? Plugging somebody in who's in a different country now is just, is, is like a non issue at all which is kind of quite amazing within itself because suddenly your resource pool becomes the planet as opposed to, you know, your city or your like location. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm quite excited about the thought of like AI and how it's going to help us with a lot of like remedial tasks that we kind of do. Like, you know, like often we do jobs and, and I, <laughs> we don't really have many modelers at our company. So embarrassingly, often we have to, we need an asset that is going to turbo squid and like have a look at it and buy the asset. Right. You know, it could be a bedroom, some furniture. And it's like arbitrary things that even if you had a good modeler, they probably wouldn't want to model because they'd be like, dude, there must be someone who's modeled a chair already. And you sit there like browsing like, for furniture or a room or some kind of asset. Like say you've got a job and it's like a set extension in a room. And I think you think to yourself like, why am I as a human like browsing for the things? I should be able to just say for like Turbo Squid, I need a boy's bedroom about 16 years old. And then it just presents you with something. And right. you'd be like, no, something more modern. And then it shuffles it up. And every time you say, yes, that's what I want, it then logs it in the algorithm that, that there was a checkbox for a 16-year-old's bedroom that's, that, that, that meets the criteria being modern. And then the next person who needs one, their starting point is where you left off. And, and it feels like to get your assets delivered, you just imagine there must be, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like it'd be that far away to have an AI that could just manage it for you. That exists. Where you can just, you can, <laughs> there is a tool called, there's a tool called Prometheus AI uh, and it's and it's quite amazing. Actually, we should uh, uh, I should send you a link to the yeah. guy's work. But he literally did exactly what you described. It's an interface. I don't know if he uses Unreal or Unity, but basically he says, make a '80s bedroom of a kid, and he does that. And that is exactly what it does. Now, of course, like you said, you need a lot of assets, and you need to feed the AI. And AI is only as good as the stuff that's in it. Uh, and how yeah, much it exactly. learns. But the idea of what it is, it's, it's going to happen or it is already starting to happen in some ways. So it's amazing. Yeah. Never thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, you're, you're, it's, it's good that you have those thoughts because I think that those are the, those are the way that people need to think as opposed to saying it's never going to happen. Say, wouldn't it be great if that happened? <laughs> you know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah, exactly. What it's, it's, we, 
it's all, it's all those things that like are pre getting a pretty image that take, consume a lot of time that that um like layout set building where that you'd imagine that could be ai automated yeah for sure for sure uh, i want to get back to ai but you mentioned something just before this is about hiring people remotely and how that's going to change everything you know one of the one of the things that happened in in you know in the uh, around 2015 or so uh, or, or actually earlier, 2013 or 14, is that people were starting to leave the visual effects industry because they didn't want to have to move to uh, locations because of tax subsidies, right? And that was, you know, around the time of um, uh, the uh, Life of Pi dilemma and all the studios were folding yeah. because they couldn't compete with all of the demand to go to locations. Because so now people... Do, does it matter anymore? Yeah. Do, do are, I mean, are tax subsidies still? Are you still forced? Do you think that's going to matter if you can say, "I just want to live wherever I want to live, and then I can just do what I want to do"? Do you think that's going to matter anymore? It's amazing you said this because I had exactly the conversation I had this morning with with um, with an EP of a company in Stockholm because mm -hmm. I was talking to them about um, um, outsourcing some modeling to them mm -hmm. for a project. And um, we were saying like, and I was, and I was saying, to, and we were like talking about exactly this. It's like, I don't know, like the whole kind of tax incentive for being in a location is it going to start falling apart now? Because you know, you can't. It's, you're really handicapping yourself. If you, if you like, if, say for example, you're a company in Vancouver, and then you're like, okay, well, we have an office here because on our payroll, the people working there that are considered permanent residents, they're going to get a, the, our vendor will get a forty percent rebate on that money that's paid to them. And it's like, so, well, and suddenly, well, now you're kind of handicapping yourself a bit because the other company you're competing against might not be in Vancouver, but they didn't have the, the world as a resource for hiring people and the talent for specific projects. Um, so I have this feeling that it's going to kind of go away. We, 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 we're bidding on a few jobs now. And when we started bidding a lot of like, um, TV film work, it's, it's funny because some, some of the people you bid with, you say to them, because we really want to get into it. So we want to invest in the project. So we, we don't mind doing it for... They want to say not like kind of like cost or like as low as we can, and they'll be that. So say you know, so they'll be like, oh, but if we went to Vancouver, we'd get forty percent back. So we were like, well, we'll just make our budget forty percent less, so we're at the same price. And then some people understand that they're like, oh, we get it. You want to, you really want to do this job, and you want to invest in it and make it great, so you can build like a um, an example of doing more long form work. But other people are like, they they just can't comprehend it. They're just like. So you're just going to do cheap work because we're paying you a cheap price. And you're like, no, 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 that's not how it goes. They would rather pay more money there and get the rebate because they feel if they're paying more, they're getting more. And it's just, and then they get a rebate. So it's kind of this weird psychology. But I've There's seen actually more, a... more people get over the yeah, because we did the same exact thing that you said, Andy. I, I worked on a, on, a, on a feature film at one point, and we actually just said, let's just go lean and mean. And uh, I, you know, work with producers like, okay, we staff, we staff up real small, right? But we get really talented people, and we'll be able to do it. And we pulled it off. We did it. We did it at the price that they wanted, <laughs> without the rebate. Mm. But we did it in LA. They mm. got pissed off because, for their business model, they actually used the rebate as collateral on the bond that they used for the film. So because they never actually got the rebate, it it, it blew their bond uh, margin. So it has nothing to do with they feel like they're getting better work. It has to do with their ta the, how they how they get their loans for to doing the yeah, movie. driven. That's really interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. So and and I I I kind of get it. I mean, but I think you're right. Is that at some point the film industry is like, wait a minute, why are we flying all over the planet? 
to do this? Why can't we just work from home at wherever you want on the planet and do that? I mean, mm-hmm. I had a conversation with some guy in London, right? And he'd need to hire people. And he said, suddenly that's the new, that's the new incentive. That's the new benefit that everyone's like, can I work from home? Right. And he's mm-hmm. able to hire people in Scotland, you know, and that, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to move to London. And he says, but they're extremely talented and it's great. Like, you know, we just zoom with them and they, and they're in the same time zone. So that's even easier. And uh, we go from there. Time zones is the one thing I say, you know, we can't change that. That's the one problem I still have with time zones. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no. I actually have that issue on a job right now where we, we're using some freelancers in South Africa, actually. Oh, right. And, um, and, and every single time we post, like, I don't know what it is, but an hour later, the client jumps on the phone saying, can we tweak these three things and repost quickly? Right. And then you're like, shit, it's like 11 p.m. in South Africa now. <laughs> it's not that easy to turn this around. Yes. Yeah. So it can, it can be painful. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Uh, yeah. It is a little, a little bit painful, but that's interesting. Okay, so you, you're, you're interested in the AI thing, which I think is very interesting. Do you think AI is going to do more than just, you know, asset, you know, building sets? Or what, what other tools do you think AI is going to be uh, useful for? I think, I, I don't know. I mean, it can carry on. I mean, I guess it just depends on, like, the, the implementation of it in the software. But, but you would imagine that, like, you know, if you were lighting a scene or picking extra eyes, you could just be, give me, you could say, give me a boy's bedroom, 16 years old-ish, where that's modern, and um, let's have some, like, um, sunset light coming through the window. Right. And then, like, you know, render it and preview it for you, like, you know, through descriptions. Um, so, I mean, who, who, who knows? I mean, the asset, AI asset management side of stuff, I imagine, is, like, as, as an artist, it would be the most useful. Because it's one of those type of like data management things. It's always kind of painful, and everyone gets into a big thing about the interface and how you manage it and um, and how it's visualized. But if there was, if you took that out of the equation and you just kind of like talked or wrote to your system and it just presented it to you, yeah, um, for sure. I mean, but then you see all that like deep, that deep, what's it, deep face technology, or that's you know where they replace people's faces with AI. Yes, no, deep fakes. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, deep fakes, and, you just, and then you start thinking, and you imagine like, well, I guess it's going to make its way into compositing and and other areas pretty fast. You know, whether it's cleanup and um, plugins like that, or whether you're just doing face replacements. And yeah, hmm. for sure, for sure, uh, that's interesting. What about pipeline? Do you think pipelines are going to change? Yeah, I mean, potentially. I'm not the most pipeline, as you know. Not you're, not, you're not a pipeline person, which is I'm asking, is there a non-pipeline that you're interested in? But, um, but um, if, if my, 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 my idea of a good pipeline is one that's never seen or heard and just somehow works in the background all the time. Right. Um, which is kind of our pipeline is our company. It's like, it's very functional. It's very well written. It's all kind of Linux-based. Um, you have control over everything from, you know, from versions, versions of plugins to versions of the software you're using. You can do it on per shot, per show, per company levels. Um, but like using it is just like a doodle. You never have to think about it. Right. Um, but, but, it, but it does feel like what but, 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 but could be really useful as well. And you were surely going to tell me something already exists for this too. But even just like server management and space disk management, you know, no matter how many terabytes of space you have somehow you just keep filling it up there should be a lot of there'll be some clever ai systems that'll just like look at things that haven't been utilized or accessed for a while archive them remove them and you'll probably never know because the truth is you didn't need the stuff anyway right um, so yeah I have, I have a feeling on that one it's probably is already software that exists 
Right, right, right. Yeah, no, those are those are those are very valid. Yeah, all those all those points are are extremely uh, correct. I'm just curious about you know what things are going. Obviously, I know that there's a lot of ideas in terms of uh, you know things with virtual production and real time, and uh, in terms of pipeline, a lot of people are talking about USD and stuff like that. So I'm just curious mm -hmm. about what you think. But I, I know I know that you 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 tend to be the guy who wants to make things and not necessarily, like you said, not have to worry about the pipeline. Let the pipeline be invisible so I can continue to do what I need to do and not have to be conscious of it all the time, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, but one thing that's interesting, just to, so just to go back to you, you mentioned virtual productions there and sets. I know, I know like in, one thing that's quite interesting is when, the, when that making of, when the Mandalorian came out and then they, and they released a couple of their making of how they had their like LED kind of dome light sets in their filming, mm -hmm. especially during, especially during um, COVID that grew like immense popularity. And I want to say like literally every time we did a call with a client, it came up like, can we do that? Yep. We can't go to, we can't get to a location and film because of COVID. Could you build a virtual set and we just film stuff? And it, it's kind of toned down a little bit now, but the value of it is still, is still recognized and it's still very popular. And, um, and, and we, we did like, and we've, we've used it on a few commercials and it becomes particularly useful on um, shows where if you have like a one or two off shot thing, it just doesn't make sense because this is so much setup cost with the stage and, and the light setup. Right. Um, but we, we did example, we did a, a Nissan campaign where I think it was like 19 commercials in total. And of those 19, 10 of them were just like a lot of people in cars talking and driving. And it was like a two week turnaround to post. And then we were just like, well, if we just actually film this in camera, like there's no reason why you, 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 you don't need to. I mean, where you couldn't, that kind of style with LED screens. But for that one, we didn't do the Unreal route or the real-time um, CG route for the environments. They, we, they actually, production actually just got like a dome camera and actually went, they just sent like a rogue car out to some landscapes they liked. Like Google walked it, liked it, and mm -hmm. then just sent the car out and filmed it. And then just played that back while they were, filming all the stuff in the car and it, it worked extremely well. I mean, it saved, and basically what, what would have been like big comp shots, which just became like in camera shots. Right. And there was just, there was one or two where the LED screen didn't quite like hold up just right. And we ended up replacing it, but it, it, for the most part of it, it was like in camera. Right. And I feel that um, technology wise, that's going to be quite exciting because I feel like it's still quite, it's at the beginning of a technology curve where it's like very expensive and hardly anyone's using it. And I feel like it's, it won't be long before dedicated um, stages with LEDs already built so you can just walk in there with your footage and use them. Um, in fact, when we did the listening campaign, we talked to some guys that were actually building a stage and that was their goal to set that up. Yep. It, it, wouldn't, it wasn't going to be ready for our shoot, but it was something they were planning for the future. I'm almost sure did. there's 100 plus stages that are being built right now for exactly that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that thing. And I, but the cool thing is when they do that, though, and there are 100 plus stages and it becomes more competitive, it'll be a really cool thing to do and get involved with, you know, and then, and then start tying in the whole kind of like um, real-time environment of dialing in the lighting interactively on a real set. I think it'll be quite exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 did, I did speak to a bunch of VFX supervisors during that time and they're like, you know, they were getting tired of the, can we just Mandalorian it? You know, like that was the, the, the thing that they're being told. And it's like, well, hold on. <laughs> Let's think about yeah. what you can, you can't. It's not like this magic thing. And you do need yeah. a bunch of people on a stage to run it. So it's not like you're completely avoiding social distancing in the process, you know? So yes, it's also a lot of money up front to, to, to like, I mean, the money thing was the thing that put most people off. Right. 
Because when you were, by the time you're done, it's like your whole post-production budget was the same cost of setting up an LED screen. Yep. I think so they're like, okay, well, um, skip it on this one. Right. But I'm excited, I'm excited for the technology. I'm excited for the fact that it makes things look really good. Yeah. Because you've got real interactive lighting on talent. You know, it's, it's so painful when you see like um, people who are like blue screen, green screen, and then the, you put your virtual environment in and then like no matter how much you try, it's like it's just never the same. Yep. And then you see the lighting on some of that, that stuff and you're like, wow, it actually really brings something to the quality of the image. Yes, for sure. For sure. I totally, I, I get exactly what you mean, for sure. Well, it's cool. Well, listen, we're getting close to a, a, an hour, Andy, and I really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and chatting with stuff. I hope to chat with you more and see more of what's going on because it's actually been way too long since you and I have chatted and seen, you know, so maybe at some point I'll be able to come down uh, and see what you're doing uh, over at Jam. Where are you guys located, by the way, in Santa Monica? Well, yeah, you that we're moving to a new office. We were in Santa Monica. Now we've just moved into a bigger building in Culver City. Oh, in Culver City? Yeah. Oh, well, that's where yeah, our yeah. office is. So I should definitely come yeah, by. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Come by for lunch or something. Yeah. But that'd be cool. Because we'll again as well. Maybe next time I can think of something interesting that will more project CG related. Because uh, I don't know how exciting this will be for most people, but you never know. It's kind of interesting. It could be interesting. Okay. Um, and then um, talk more. And then maybe I could also bring a guest on, bring one of my like technical guys on to, to talk more about pipeline or other aspects of things yes yes well cool listen uh i actually want to talk to you a bunch of about a, a couple things off the podcast so maybe you can just stick around <laughs> but uh yeah, but well, for, i really want to talk to you about um, about v-ray and fur rendering cool. yeah yeah yeah. well let's let's stick let's let's stick around here for a second but i'm gonna i'm gonna say for for the people listening to podcasts let's 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 say goodbye and thanks for coming but then we'll, you and i can chat a little bit more about some of the cool things that we can do together how's that sound yes yeah, so then, and then we can tell them in the next podcast yeah how those things exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right well thanks so much andy yeah, it's been a pleasure, Chris. Thanks, thanks for asking me to, to chat. It's been great. <laughs>